and today we are specifically on um, the deity of Christ. Last week we um, went over the direct scriptural claims that we saw from scripture, and then there's many that clearly define that Christ is God and Jesus is God. So today we want to continue with that, those studies and kind of ask and answer these questions. The first one would be the evidence that Jesus possessed the attributes of the deity. And thirdly, to, well, secondly of, of our topic today is to talk through Christ's, uh, his full divinity. And then to answer the question, is the doctrine of the incarnation unintelligible or is it hard for us to understand or not for us to understand today? And then lastly is why was it necessary for Jesus to be part of or to be God? And hopefully we can answer those clearly as best as we can from Scripture. So get to the first point, which is actually the second point, but the first point for today uh, what evidence do we have to see that Jesus is possessed, or not possessed, that Jesus possesses the attributes of the deity of God? The first is, uh, as you can see, is his omnipotence. And secondly, is we'll see in Scripture, but his eternality, or is etern- eternal. And then third is omniscience. Fourth is omnipresence. Fifth is sovereignty. Sixth is immortality. And then last is uh, scripture tells us that we should worship Jesus Christ alone. Uh, those are the things that we'll talk about in this particular section. So let's start with the first one. Christ being omnipotent or all-powerful, big word, but um, I think you've heard it before if you've been in church. Christ, we know that God is all-powerful from, from the Old Testament. We know that he is, uh, is, is powerful in every way. But we also know that Scripture says that Jesus Christ is, has the same attributes as God, and he, ha, he is also omnipotent. And we see that in one example that you probably are familiar with is when Jesus calmed the waters, or he stilled the waters in Matthew 8. It's recorded for us a couple times in Scriptures. This particular one we'll read, Matthew eight twenty three through 27. Then he got into the boat, and the disciples followed him. Suddenly a a furious storm came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was asleep. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up, he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. We see Jesus as the man doing exactly what an all-powerful, omnipotent God could and only do. He calmed this fierce storm. And if you know anything about the New Testament or at least about the disciples, they were fishermen. So being a fisherman... Uh, the fact that they were that afraid makes me think this was a fierce storm, other than the fact that Scripture says that it was. But it was a very bad storm, and they were fearful. So it wasn't just a little bit of weather, bad weather. It was a very bad storm, and, and Jesus got up and simply said, you know, peace be still, as it's recorded for us in other Scripture. 
And, and nature listened because, again, he is the omnipotent God. Scripture also records for us the, the passage we, we have up there in Matthew 14 where Jesus turned just a few loaves of bread and fish into many to feed many. He took these five, I'm going to read in verse 19, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Can you imagine that day where just these few fish and few uh, loaves of bread fed 5,000 men, not including the women and children? So the numbers would be astronomical. That is clearly a miracle that only a God could do, an omnipotent God could do. We also have recorded for us in Scripture when Jesus' first actual miracle that's recorded for us in John, where Jesus turned the water into wine. Sure, we're all familiar with that one. He took water and he, he, was to, he told the people to put, uh, fill the jars with water. When they poured out the water, it, it was wine. That was Jesus' first miracle. Scripture, scripture clearly states that Jesus is God. Jesus is not only God, but he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Secondly, he's eternal. As we read last week, uh, both of these passages, Jesus stated to the people around him, which caused them to think he was blaspheming, because he said, before Abraham was born, I am. What did he mean by that? What did he, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He was not 30 years old. So how could he be before Abraham, who had died long ago? Jesus was stating that he was eternal. He was and is, all, always has been God. He, didn't, he wasn't created like us. He didn't have a start. Now, there is one similarity to Christ and us, one thing that we'll talk about just real quickly is that we also have a soul that will last on for eternity. The difference is, again, that we were created and God wasn't. Jesus wasn't. Jesus also says, or John records for us in, in Revelations, that, that Jesus is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the last, the beginning and the end. Again, stating that He is eternal. So Jesus is all-powerful, he's eternal, and he's all-knowing. He knew people's thoughts. I, I, if you're honest with yourself, you probably wouldn't want to be around a person like that who knows your thoughts, and not only that, but probably even more knows your intentions and your motives. Sometimes we don't even know our own motives and intentions, but Jesus knew them. Mark records for us in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read all of those verses. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that they had come home. They gathered in such a large number that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. 
Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to, uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by, by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there and thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was their that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, So he said to the men, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he took, he got up, he took the mat and he walked out in the full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, He has never seen anything. We have never seen anything like this. Jesus clearly did a lot of things there. He forgave. He said to this man, Your sins are forgiven. And, and you can see the people saying, Well, why? They're thinking to themselves, Only God can do that. And Jesus knew their thoughts because he was all knowing. And, and can you imagine? those Pharisees and Sadducees as they, they were repeated back the thoughts that they were thinking by Jesus. you think that that would have been enough for them to believe that he is God, but it wasn't. It probably further put a wedge between them and believing that he is God, and it, it, it made them even more bitter. But Jesus was omniscient in that moment. He was all-knowing. And you can see the other passages or other reference points. So we've got Jesus saw Nathan from afar before he, was, he hadn't seen him. He, he, he knew what he was doing. He was underneath a fig leaf. And then we see that he knew Judas was going to portray him before everybody else did. So he knew things that people didn't know. It still amazes me that, that Jesus Christ made Judas part of his 12 disciples. He had him closest to the closest that he could be. I mean, not, he wasn't part of the core, obviously, but he was part of the 12. Knowing full well that Judas would betray him for, for metal, for coins, We can read other things in Scripture that, that, uh, that point to Christ's Jesus, God, being omniscient. omniscient. Uh, in, in the passage that we've got up there in, in John, there's an interaction between Jesus and Peter after his resurrection. And we see Jesus asking Peter if he loved him. And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So Peter recognized that Jesus was omniscient. So God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Jesus is omnipowerful. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. He's all-knowing. And he is omnipresent. And this is a hard one, uh, I think, 
for us to think through. He's omnipresent. How does that work everywhere at once? Obviously, there's limitations to human flesh and human. Uh, there were many passages of Scripture where Jesus disappeared. We don't know how he disappeared, but that's part of who God was. But Scripture records for us in Matthew 18, talking, talking to the disciples, the people around him, and he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Well, how is that possible? If God is not omnipresent, and we believe everything that Jesus says is true, then how is that possible? It's because he is God. And, and that is a passage in Scripture that we use uh, for when two or three come together in, her, in his name, that Christ is with us. Christ is with us always, right? But there's a promise to the believers that where there are two or three, there is Christ with them. And then in Matthew 28, the last time that he was with his disciples and those around him, those small number of people that were around him, we see that Jesus again says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Christ is reminding them that even though he's not there in flesh and blood like they were used to and comfortable with and wanted, and uh, that, that when Christ went back to heaven, he was still going to be with them until the end of age. He's not going to leave them. And that was hopefully comforting to them. So Christ is everywhere at once. He's omnipresent. He's also sovereign. The sovereignty of God is, is that He is in divine control over everything. And we can see in these passages that Jesus also possessed those attributes, the same attributes again as God. In Mark 2, we just read, Jesus forgave the sin of the people around them. He, 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 this is not something that a normal, a normal human being could do. I mean, I could tell you your sins are forgiven, or maybe if you came to me and asked for your forgiveness, I would say I forgive you, but this is not the kind of forgiveness that Jesus was giving. He was forgiving sins and ushering them into their, uh, his family and ultimately to the kingdom. And it was because Jesus was God. He was in control of, of, of everything. We also see the, the Christ's authority in the way he taught through the Beatitudes in the passages that we got there, Matthew 5 and those verses to follow. Jesus was teaching through the, the Beatitudes and he was telling the crowd to gather around him and to be and the, the, the Christian believers to be salt and light to the world. And he was reminding them, and he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then tell him he didn't come to... Then he, then he said, uh, uh, he, Jesus was showing his authority to, to them by teaching them, if they sin, there will be judgment. There's going to be consequences for their sins. And that is a stark difference between what the Old Testament prophets said when they said, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, when Jesus says, I say to you, 
if you do this, this will happen. Do you see the difference between the way that a prophet would say and what Jesus is saying? The prophets were saying it on behalf of what God is telling them. Jesus is saying, I am God. If you do this, you will be punished. Again, proving that he was God, he was sovereign. In John 3, we see John telling his readers that if they believe in Jesus, they will be accepted, into him, accepted with him into the future. But if they reject him now, Christ will reject them, reject them in the future. Only a sovereign God can say such things. So Christ is sovereign. He's also immortal. This is an attribute certainly of God that he's immortal or has the inability to die. He can't die. And you must maybe think, well, wait a minute. We know Jesus died on the cross because that's what we talk about. How does that happen? Well, yes, he did die. But what happens three days later, he rose again from the grave, proving that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. That passage that we're probably all familiar with, where it really upset the people that Jesus said, if you tear down this temple in three days, it'll be raised. That was in reference to his body, saying that he was immortal. Only a good shepherd would lay his life down for his, his people. Jesus said, I will lay my life down and it'll be raised again, proving that he was immortal. First Timothy records for us that God has the power, Jesus Christ has the power of immortality. It says the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. That's talking specifically about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was immortal. We have, uh, we're mortal people, right? We're going to die, our soul will live on, but again, we were created. Jesus didn't have that. Jesus lived on forever. And lastly, the evidence that we can see today that Jesus possessed the same attributes as God, the Father, is, is by the way that Scripture states, not asks us, but commands us to worship Him. It tells us to worship God and God alone. In the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, it tells us we need to worship Christ which Christ is God. In the last book of, of, the, of our Bible that we have recorded for us, Revelations 19, we see John, he's, he's being faced with these amazing things that the angels are telling him. And what does he do? He, he, he falls to his knees and he wants to worship them. And the angel says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Okay, yeah, we knew that. For it is the spirit of the prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The angels of the Lord were saying, don't worship us. We're, we're no different. We were created just like you. Worship God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. In Philippians, Paul tells us that in that day when all of this world is ended, what does it say? Is every tongue Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is, is Lord and to the glory of God the Father. Scripture is clearly telling us that we must worship Jesus just like we worship God because He is God. In Hebrews, we see God commanding the angels to worship Christ. 
And nowhere else in, in Scripture do we see God commanding people to worship anyone but himself. It's always worship God. Love God with all your heart and all your mind. So if God is commanding the angels to worship Jesus, we know that Jesus is God. And then finally in Revelation 5, we see the people saying that the Lamb of God was the only one to open the scroll. The only one that could open the scroll. Who could do it? Jesus. And he was the only one that was worthy to be worshipped. So not only in Scripture do we see direct evidence that Christ is part of the deity, but we also see that Jesus possessed the same attributes as God the Father. Now let's see what the Bible says about Christ being fully divine. The New Testament tells us over and over again that Christ is fully God. It calls many things that show he is God. It shows him doing and saying things that only God could say. It calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But yet he was still human. So we know he was 100% human, but he was also fully God. The New Testament is explicit when it calls Jesus God and Lord and, and how many other titles, there's many out there. Colossians 1, we see the fullness of God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians, Scripture, God is telling us that God was Jesus. Jesus was God. There was fullness in this deity in Colossians 2. We read, For in Christ all the fulfillness of deity lives in the bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fulfillness. Thirdly, Jesus is fully man and fully God. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. That passage that we know so well and we probably read most when Christmas comes, but that passage in Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill the Lord had said through the prophets, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And certainly these are just a few passages of Scripture that, uh, that state that Jesus is fully divine. There are many, many more, but these are just one. So maybe you are struggling with the fact that this incarnation is just really, really hard to understand. Or, or it's just really hard for, for us to understand today. Or maybe a better way to ask is, is could it be? Is this, is this our incarnation still relevant today? In our world, was just this a thought, this incarnation was, incarnation was just cultural, something that was relevant and meant something to those people of the time, and I would say no, it's not. The topic of doctrinal incarnation in the New Testament has always been a subject and always will be until Christ comes back a debate, and many people question the full deity of Christ. It's what you would say is the paradox. It's, it's 
puzzled and it's, it's complex. It's theologians struggle with it. How can Jesus be both fully God and fully man? I think it's a question that there's not an easy answer, but one has, has inspired many, the music that we sing, the, the literature and lots of different things have come out of incarnation of Jesus Christ, good and bad. Certainly people take advantage and twist the truth. But just because it's hard to understand, it doesn't mean we dismiss it or try to, as modern people do, modern People that call themselves Christians, they try to deconstruct. They take this good and then they, they leave out the things they don't want to deal with. Maybe it's hard to understand. The doctrine of incarnation is, is an amazing theological truth. What's amazing, though, is to know that God, Jesus, He walked among us. And He was still God. He was a friend and companion to the ones around them. We know of God-man where there's divinity, this divinity, it's, it's, it's all intertwined. That's what Scripture tells us. You can't, you can't take away the man from Jesus and God from... They're, they're, they're the same. The reality is the incarnation will, I believe, always be a mystery, even probably when we get to heaven. We probably won't fully understand it, fully comprehend. But that doesn't mean that we can't appreciate its beauty and, and wonder and strive to live our lives in a way that reflects the truth and the power of the divinity or of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says, The doctrine of the incarnation as understand by the church throughout history has indeed been coherent and intelligent. Though no one maintains that it proves us without an exhaustive explanation of how Jesus is both fully God and fully man, our proper response is not to reject the clear and central teaching of Scripture about the Incarnation, but to simply recognize that it will remain a paradox, something hard for us to understand. That is all that God has chosen to reveal to us about it, and that is true. If we are to submit ourselves to God, and to his word and scripture, then we must believe it. The church has historically affirmed the incarnational doctrine as, as, a, as a paradoxal revelation from God and scripture. Well, without fully comprehending how Jesus is divine and human, we don't have to. We still have to believe it. Either we believe the full inspiration of God's word, every word and thought, or we don't believe any of it. The doctrine of incarnation is no different just because it's hard or impossible for us to understand. We must believe even though it is hard. Lastly, why was Jesus' deity necessary? Maybe you've thought of that. Maybe you haven't. Because the full deity of Christ is essential for our redemption Salvation and knowledge of God based on Scripture and historical evidence. Denying the full deity of Christ leads to apostasy and false religion. You've probably seen that. People taking the truth and twisting it. What, what do the Muslims believe? That Jesus is just a good man? He's a prophet? But they do not believe in the deity of Christ. They've taken truth and twisted it. 
then that's apostasy, false religion. That's exactly what we have to warn ourselves from. Only an infinite God could bear the full penalty of sin. The fact that he bore just one person's sin is amazing, right? All of our sins. And I've, if you've been here long enough, you've heard the analogy that if you were to, I think Jay just even mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you were to sin, what did you say, three times a day or whatever, it's a crazy number of sins that you have. And Jesus forgave not only one person's, but all that would come to him. Secondly, salvation is from the Lord. No mere human could save man, only a God. Salvation comes from the Lord, Jonah says. Third, only someone who is fully God could be our mediator. Thankful for a mediator in Christ. Uh, the fact that, and certainly God could have done it differently, but <clears throat> I, I have to think about it. The fact that it was a man who had the same struggles as us without sin. Jesus had hunger pains and he had sorrow and, and he was tired and he was tempted how much, how awesome is that to know that we have a God that understands that? There's empathy there and sympathy there. I'm sure you've gone through difficult times. And if there's somebody that comes and comforts you and you, they say to you, I'm praying for you, and you thank them, but if they say, I'm praying for you, and I've gone through the very similar, similar thing, it, there's a certain bond that you have. Um, when I had COVID and I was in the hospital, there's this certain bond afterwards that we would, I would talk to people that had COVID that were in the hospital, and it was sometimes an unspoken thing. And it was a, it was a praise and appreciation that we're still alive. And that's different than somebody else that had COVID that didn't go to hospital. Not to say there's different pains and struggles, but there's just something different and I think that that is so much greater than what Christ has done for us because he is our mediator. He came to this earth. He lived and walked on this earth. But yet he is God. He ransomed him. He gave himself as a ransom for all people. Conversely, if Jesus was not God, there would be no salvation. There'd be no Christianity. He would just be another good man. He would just be a person that died on the cross and rumors had him coming back to life, or maybe he didn't die like the Muslims say, and he was taken off the cross and replaced with somebody else. There would be no salvation. If we deny Christ, we deny God. 1 John says, no one who denies the Son the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father. Clear. If we deny Christ, we deny God. You can't say you love God if you don't know Jesus. 2 John, uh, John 9 says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Can't take them apart. Without Jesus, there is no God. Without God, there is no Jesus. Without, uh, it doesn't, you can't take them apart. So we went through and talked through 
uh, hopefully these are nothing unusual for us. We talked through the direct scriptural claim last week and all of the things we talked about today. What does it mean for me today? The full divinity of Jesus is essential for our salvation and our Christian Christianity. History shows that those who, Scripture shows that those who have rejected the truth, um, they've left the Christian faith and they've, they've taken on different thinking. They've made their own religions. If you look at all of the religions that are out there, there is some similarity, even the Muslims and the, or even the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's some truth in, in what they have, and then they've taken it and twisted it. Christianity, uh, Catholicism's lumped into Christianity that way. But Scripture teaches different than those religions because they took the divinity of Christ and they've twisted it. The full divinity of Jesus is is not only a biblical doctrine, but also a vital one for our Christian faith. Without it, we would have no assurance of salvation and no access to the Father. And I would say no hope of eternal life. The full deity of of Jesus also challenges us to follow His example, humility and love and obedience, and hopefully to share the gospel with others around us. Third is, as we celebrate His birth, Christ, or Scripture tells us to worship God. We celebrate His birth, His death and resurrections, and the way that we sing songs, the way that we uh, talk and have, have conversations. Let us remember who He is. He's the Son of God, the Word made flesh, and the Lord of all. So what final thoughts before I close? Jay has points to ponder. (laughs) These are food for thoughts. Um, These are just questions for you to walk away with. Hopefully you can answer them to yourself. How does this teaching of the deity of Christ help us better understand Jesus' humanity? Does it aid you in dwelling with temptation and improve your prayer life? Hopefully it does. Can you relate to those situations, the way that Jesus related to them, is that an encouragement to you, knowing that there is an escape for temptation? Does this inspire confidence in your prayer life? I think it should, the fact that we know that there is a mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. Have these last weeks enhanced your understanding of Jesus' divinity? Maybe it hasn't. Maybe you already know all these things. But I feel like every time we study things, even for me, there's always little nuggets that I can walk away with. Hopefully there's something small or even grand that you walk away with praising God more. Can you empathize with the disciples as they gradually realize Christ's identity? Just imagine the fact that they saw all these amazing things. And hopefully uh, hopefully we can say, as we learn in our Christian walk, as we grow and do what God has us to do, that we are more encouraged and more confident and have more praise and more hope because of what Christ has done and doing in our lives, just like the disciples who saw him do amazing things. And do you find joy in your current worship of him? Hopefully you do. We're going to sing a song, Come Behold, 
the wondrous story, I think it's appropriate um, reflection of what we just learned. But next week, um, we will, or not next week, the week after, we will uh, continue our teaching on the doctrines of Christ, and we'll talk specifically uh, of the atonement and the cause and necessity, nature and extent of it. So let's pray, and then we'll sing, Come Behold. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious doctrine of uh, the deity, how that Christ is God and you are God. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you for uh, the hope and the joy that we can find in knowing that there is a mediator between you and us, and that's Jesus Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us on the cross, the life that he lived, and